Dear church family, if you have ever taken the time to sit down and watch a recording or maybe a remake of an older court trial, you will probably remember the scene fairly well. There sits the judge at his desk with his gavel beside him, presiding over the case. And then usually off to one side is the prosecuting lawyer making his case. And then off to the other side likely is the defendant with the defense lawyer. And then off to the left or the right usually is the jury. Those who are serving as neutral observers in the case. And then near the prosecuting lawyer typically are the witnesses who will present evidence for the accused or against the accused. As an example of this, perhaps some of you have seen the court trial, the recordings of the court trial of a man named Adolf Eichmann back in the 60s. You can find those recordings online. That court trial was one of the most widely publicized court trial of its day. Adolf Eichmann was one of the masterminds behind the Holocaust. And as that court trial took place, the whole world effectively had its eyes on that trial. And the court case was conducted accordingly, with sobriety, with seriousness. The whole world was watching. And as we come to the beginning of the book of Isaiah here this evening, we find a similar court case, but a court case on a far grander scale. It's the court case of the Lord God against his covenant people, Israel. And Isaiah, who pens these words and speaks in this passage, is standing as God's mouthpiece. In fact, Isaiah's role, as we will see in this passage, is to act effectively as the prosecuting lawyer against Israel on behalf of God, while at the same time serving as the court herald for the court proceedings. And his primary role was to present before Israel four things. One, the evidence that was set against them. Two, the current verdict against them, which was guilty. Three, God's desired outcome for the court trial. And then four, what they needed to do in order to receive a favorable outcome. Four things that Isaiah was to present. And as we approach this text this evening, we need to take a moment to realize that although Isaiah and Israel was a long time ago, Just as they stood as God's covenant people, so we stand here today. Just as Isaiah prosecuted them, so he could be standing here today prosecuting us. Paul, as he speaks about the Old Testament, says that these things were written for our examples, for our admonition, that we might pay attention and learn. And so as we hear these words this evening, let's not get stuck thinking That Isaiah and God is only speaking to Israel. He's not. He's speaking also to us here this evening. He wants our ears. He wants our hearts. Let us give, Paul says, the more earnest heed to these things. Now I want to approach this court proceeding, this court trial, under five points. And you'll see those in your bulletin if you have one. But before we begin those five points, I want to give some background to this court trial and really to this book. And that comes from verse one of our text. Verse one, many scholars believe, was actually a, a title, a heading written on something placed on a wall above where the chest sat that held the scroll of Isaiah. So as you read verse one, this is likely what the people of Israel would have seen in the temple as they walked in and saw that scroll of Isaiah sitting there in the chest. 
The vision of Isaiah, verse 1 reads, The son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now maybe we ask a question about this verse, and we want to know what exactly does this heading mean for them back then and also for us today. First, we can ask, what is this vision? What is this vision that Isaiah saw? Well, when the text says that this is the vision which Isaiah saw, it's not speaking of something like a video that we might watch on a computer screen or on a phone. This vision, this word for vision, more appropriately speaks of of an understanding, a clear understanding that God conveyed to Isaiah's mind of all these things written in the book of Isaiah. Things that had happened. Things that were happening. Things that would happen. Things that God desired should happen in Israel. And this vision, this understanding of all these things wasn't given to Isaiah so he could just sit back and enjoy knowing all these things. It was given to him for a purpose. Just like the word of God is given to us for a purpose. It was given to him to use it to God's people, to give to God's people, to rebuke them for their sin and to call them to righteousness. That's the first thing we can notice about this heading over the scroll. The second thing is that it happened during the reign of four kings. You see those names there in verse 1. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Four kings. And if you do the math and you look at the, at the reigns of these men, their reigns together added up to approximately 80 years. A long vision. A long court case. Now, today, we listen to the news and we hear of long court cases too. And sometimes those court cases are elongated because... There's a lack of evidence. They just can't solve the case. Or sometimes there's lawyers who are being paid to sit there and use all the loopholes in the law to prolong the case indefinitely. Or sometimes the court itself is just inept. It can't finish what it's trying to do. Sometimes there's a broken justice system that doesn't want to finish what it should be doing. But this court case, this court case of Isaiah, this court case of God versus his people, does not go on for this length of time because there was a lack of evidence or because the court was inept. The evidence was clear. God was the judge. This court case went on and on and on for one reason and one reason only. And that is because of the long-suffering patience of God. God was here in the book of Isaiah really keeping his word to Moses so many years earlier. You remember when Moses was on the Mount, Mount Sinai and the Lord was revealing himself to Moses. And we read in Exodus 34 that the Lord passed by before Moses and how did he reveal himself to Moses? Did he reveal himself as a quick-tempered God? No. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. That's why this court case could go on for so long. And that's why the Lord's court cases in our lives go on also, isn't it? Not because the evidence isn't clear, but because God is gracious. God is patient, waiting, calling for us to turn to him. And this is what he did to Israel year after year, king after king, over and over and over again. He called, repent, repent. Just think of them. They're delivered out of Egypt. An incredible deliverance. A deliverance that if we could see today, I don't know what our reaction would be. The Red Sea parted in front of you. 
a whole nation, and you travel through on dry ground. Incredible. And yet, what happened after that, shortly after that? Moses goes up into the mount to receive the law of God, and then the golden calves. And then they're rebuked for that, but then there's the murmuring and there's the complaining. And then they're rebuked for that, and many die, and they wander for 40 years, and then they come to the promised land, and eventually they enter, enter under Joshua, but once again, there's sin, there's unbelief. There's the time of the judges, where every man did that which is right in his own eyes. There's the time of the kings, some good, but many not so good. And by the time we come to Isaiah, we have to come, we have to come to the conclusion that Israel is in something of a hopeless case. And yet, and yet, God still offers pardon. He still offers peace. And that brings us to our first point this evening, that is the Father's call, the Father's call to attention. We see that in verse 2 of our text. You can read it with me. Hear, this is Isaiah speaking, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. You can picture Isaiah, can't you? He's standing, as it were, like a herald in the middle of this courtroom, this cosmic courtroom. And he's crying out to the the heavens above and to the earth beneath. And he's saying, listen, pay attention. He's calling the witnesses, if you will, to the stand. Now we ask, why is Isaiah calling heaven and earth as witnesses? Why would they be the witnesses in this court case? Well, heaven and earth are actually quite fitting witnesses because heaven and earth have, if you will, seen everything that has happened from the beginning of time. Heaven and earth were there, weren't they, when man was created and formed in all the glory that God gave to him. Heaven and earth were there when God made a covenant with Adam in the garden. They, as it were, heard the words of the Lord God speaking to Adam. And they were there, weren't they, when Eve took that fruit off the tree and gave to her husband Adam, and they ate and plunged the world into darkness. In fact, Paul says that ever since that day, the whole world is groaning and travailing, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Heaven and earth have seen all these things. In fact, in Deuteronomy 4, Moses, as he's speaking to Israel, calls the heaven and the earth as witnesses against Israel if they don't keep all the words of the covenant. And then if you go all the way to the end of Deuteronomy, to Deuteronomy 32, where Moses gives what's known as the covenant song to Israel, he begins with these words. He says, Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. So heaven and earth are appropriate witnesses for this court case here in Isaiah chapter 1. But let's return now to these words. What does he say next? Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. Why? For the Lord hath spoken. For the Lord has spoken. You know, it's one thing for man to speak. Sometimes we have important speeches that are televised by the president or by the prime minister, and many, many people listen. But it's one thing, isn't it, for men to speak. It's another thing. It's another thing when God is the one speaking. In fact, Psalm 29 gives us a remarkable picture of what happens in creation when God speaks. Psalm 29, verse 3, says this, The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thundereth. The Lord is upon many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars. Yea, the Lord breaketh the cedars of Lebanon. He maketh them also to skip like a calf. Lebanon and Syrian like a young unicorn. The voice of the Lord divideth the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shaketh the wilderness. 
the Lord shaketh the wilderness of Kadesh. So we could say that when God speaks here, heaven and earth as the witnesses stand up straight in attention to hear what God would say to them. And what does God say to them? Well, look at the rest of verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children. I have nourished and brought up children. What a shocking statement. The Lord has effectively brought onto trial not some enemy, not his subjects, but children. And it's very fascinating if you look at the original language of this verse. Isaiah actually takes that word children, and and if we could treat it in our modern-day way of emphasizing things, he underlines it. He he bolds it. He italicizes it. We, We could say it this way. I have... Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the, Lord, for the Lord hath spoken. Children I have nourished and brought up. There is a shock factor in the way Isaiah writes this and in the way God speaks this that should get our attention. Now, why does God bring children? Why does God bring his children into this courtroom? What has brought matters to such a place? Well, we see that very clearly, don't we, in the rest of verse 2. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. They have rebelled against me. Now, we hear about rebellion often in our culture, don't we? And we experience it often. In fact, it's somewhat commonplace. Maybe we pay very little attention to rebellion because it's so commonplace. And yet, The Old Testament actually describes rebellion as the sin of witchcraft. And witchcraft is a sin that's punishable in the Old Testament by death. And then this rebellion, this rebellion that God is speaking about is not something like a citizen speeding along a road above the speed limit and getting caught by a police officer or or a student misbehaving in class. That's not the relationship that's being got at here. The relationship is a relationship between a child and a father, a familial relationship, a close relationship. This is a rebellion that is the deepest and worst kind of rebellion that one could possibly have. This is a rebellion of a child going from very young age into, to young, into the young teen years, the older teen years, to young adulthood, looking at God, looking at their parent and saying, I want nothing to do with you. We could even say that this is a child slapping their parent across the face. I want nothing to do with you. Or Israel slapping God across the face. I want nothing to do with you. And if we think about this rebellion, we need to ask a question, don't we? When God gives this courtroom cry, What kind of cry is it? How is he saying it? Is he saying it in a vengeful way? Is he saying it in a bitter way? Is he saying it in a distant way? Well, he really should be saying it in all those ways, shouldn't he? And yet we find out as we go on through this text that this is actually a father's cry. This is a father's cry of spurned love and injured justice. You see, Israel was God's covenant people. Israel was effectively married to God. They had covenanted with God. We read in Exodus 24, verse 3, when God came to Israel with all of his covenant terms, that they didn't respond by saying, we won't be your people. They responded with these words, all the words which the Lord hath spoken will we do? We will do it. We're in to the covenant. We've agreed. They had covenanted with God, and yet here they were. Rebellion, disobedience, year after year, generation after generation. And so God is calling them to account. He's, as it were, dragging them into the divine courtroom and saying, children, I have raised up, but they have rebelled 
against me. But even in the middle of this, we see, especially as we look at the rest of Isaiah, that God is bringing this cry against them, even as the father of the prodigal son would have called for him to come home. That's the picture we get in Isaiah. Even in in chapter 1, we read these words. Come now, says God, and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And then if you march all the way through the book of Isaiah, all the way to chapter 54, we read these words. Seek ye the Lord. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. 54 chapters of court proceedings against Israel. You'd think that God would have said, I'm done with it. But no, return unto me and I will abundantly pardon you. And if you look north of Israel, rather north of the the nation of Judah to Israel in the north, and you listen to the words of Hosea who spoke to them, you get the same message, don't you? In Hosea 11, we read these words from God. Despite all of Israel's sin, How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I set thee as Zeboim? Mine heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. So this courtroom courtroom accusation, which God files against Israel, is a cry of justice. But it's a cry of justice from a judge whose first desire is not to punish but to show mercy. We need to realize as we consider this that God will have justice. He will have justice. All through scriptures, we read again and again and again that God is a God of justice. He doesn't turn his eyes away from sin. And yet at the same time, at the same time, God longs, God longs for sinners to turn to him and to receive his mercy As an example of this, I think many of you here have experienced seeing a storm brewing off in the distance, coming towards you. You can see the storm, can't you, in the distance? The thunder clouds, maybe the lightning, maybe you can hear the the faint thunder, maybe you can even see the rain. But what does the sight of that storm coming towards you make you do? Do you just stand out there wherever you are and just watch it come towards you? Likely not. Likely you run for shelter. And that's precisely the way it is with God's wrath and with God's justice. When God speaks to us of his justice, when he speaks to us of his judgment, when he speaks of all the terrible things and of hell itself that will come to us if we do not turn to the Lord, It is the thunderstorms of his justice coming towards us, driving us not to despair, but to run for safety to God himself. And that's the purpose of these words in our chapter here today. God is driving Israel back to himself with these harsh words of judgment. And we need to ask ourselves also as we sit here this evening, We sit here, don't we, as the covenant people of God. We sit here as baptized members, the holy set-apart people to God. Does God come to us and look at us and say, I have raised up children. I have raised up children, but they have rebelled against me. Is that what God does and says to us? Well, we need to think about this also in terms of our own sin, don't we? Israel was a sinful nation. 
they had their own peculiar sins. You can read through all the chapters of Isaiah and you can come across a whole list of sins. But we have our sins here today also, don't we? We have our own pet sins. Sins that are familiar to us. Sins in our culture that we sometimes take part in. Sins in our church that we begin to accept. And yet, when God looks at us, he looks at us, doesn't he, even as he looked at Israel. He looks at us and he says, I see it all. In fact, I have heaven and earth as my witnesses against you. Heaven and earth, as it were, watching every single thing you do. One pastor in our circles put it this way. He said, if you or me were to walk around living our everyday life and then God were to put a microphone down to the ground upon which we walked and lived our lives, what would the world have to say about us? What has it seen us do? We need to answer the question honestly, don't we? In the book of Hebrews, we read these words, that all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. If you go to the book of Ezekiel, you'll come across an interesting portion in Ezekiel 8 where there's these men who are sinning behind closed doors. But for some reason, they think that the closed doors are hiding them from the gaze of God. They say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Is that how we think here today in our day-to-day lives? Do we go about our lives committing sins here and there because practically speaking, we believe that God does not see But God does see. God does see. Remember those words that Hagar confessed in a different context, but so true for us today. Thou, God, seest me. She thought she was alone. But thou, God, seest me. Is God watching you here tonight? And what does he see? God knows what he sees. The Apostle Paul reminds us of this truth in relation to this. He says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And with this in mind, let's return to this courtroom, this cosmic courtroom with Isaiah standing as the herald. And God gives us this description of Israel through Isaiah. The ox knoweth its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel doth not know. My people doth not consider. In other words, Israel had effectively rebelled in their hearts against God to a point of unnaturalness. Children, think about your pet. Maybe you have a dog or maybe you have farm animals. Those animals learn, don't they, where to go for their food. And when you give them their food, normally, they don't refuse it. They don't bite your hand. And yet, Israel didn't understand. They were effectively biting the hand that was feeding them. God was giving them, seeking to give them everything they needed, and yet they would not have God. And so God is compelled, isn't he? He's compelled to prosecute them. And he brings also against them a reproach in verse 4. Now this far Isaiah has been speaking, as it were, to heaven and earth, speaking about Israel, about the court case. 
But now he, he brings the spotlight fully upon Israel and he begins by describing their identity. Look at it with me in verse 4. He begins with these words, Ah, sinful nation. Ah, sinful nation. Now what does it mean to sin? What does it mean to be a sinful nation? Well, we know that to sin, as John teaches, is to transgress the law. It's to go beyond the boundaries that God has set out for us. But if you go to the Old Testament, there's another helpful illustration for sin. And that is to miss the mark. To miss the mark. If you read in Judges 20, you'll come across a statement that the children of Benjamin had 700 left-handed slingers that could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. But the word there is the same word for sin. They could sling a stone at a hair and not sin. The idea is that to obey God is to hit the mark. It's to hit the mark of God's commandments. It's to hit the bullseye of God's glory. Now, if we're out in the field and we're doing target practice or whatever we do, and we miss the target, we miss the bullseye, that's not because we don't want to miss the bullseye typically, but it's because we have some sort of lack of ability, likely. But when it comes to God's commandments, God presents before us the bullseye of his glory. And he says, shoot with all of your life towards that bullseye. And by nature, we look at it and we say, no. I'm going to shoot at this target. The target of my own glory. The bullseye of my own glory. That's what it is to sin. It's to reject God and his commandments and to seek ourselves and our will. And that's what God is saying about Israel. A sinful nation. And then he continues with a second descriptor. He says there are people laden with iniquity. They're laden, they're loaded down with iniquity. I don't know what you think about when you think about someone being loaded down. But I think about a hiker with a heavy, heavy backpack. Loaded down with that backpack. Or some time ago when we were loading up to move here, we moved our piano from our living room. And there were a number of us who carried it out. And we were loaded down with that piano. It was pulling us down. And God is saying, Israel, you are being pulled down. You are overwhelmed with iniquity. What is iniquity, we say? Well, iniquity is evil that incurs guilt. It's evil actions that bring guilt in. So Israel is loaded down with evil and loaded down with guilt. Their conscience is full of guilt full of evil. But not only those two things. He continues, doesn't he? And remember, this is a father. This is a father speaking against his own children. He says they are a seed of evildoers. They're children of evildoers. They were a pure people. They were a holy people set apart to God. But here they are, a seed of evildoers. And then he continues They're children that are corruptors. Children that are corruptors. They had been given so many good gifts. So many good gifts. Paul in Romans 9 says that Israel was the nation to whom pertained the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises and the list could go on. But they took those gifts and they corrupted them. Now, children, maybe you're wondering, what does it mean to corrupt something? What does it mean to corrupt something? Well, let me give you an example. Let's say that your parents, for your birthday or for some other event, gave you a gift. They gave you a toy. And let's say it's a toy car. And what's the purpose of a toy car? Well, the purpose of a toy car is to, to, to play like a real car, right? You, you ride it along the ground. But let's say you took that toy car and you began to hit your sibling with it. 
you corrupted that gift. You corrupted that gift. You're using it for what it should not be used for. Or let's say you have a vehicle. What's that vehicle for? Well, it's to be used for good purposes, to take you from destination A to destination B safely. But let's say someone took it and they used it for a bank robbery. They've corrupted the vehicle. They've corrupted the gift. And that's precisely what Israel had done in this situation. They took all of the good things God had given them, the land, their wives, their children, the the wealth that they had received, and they took it and they said, okay, we've got it, and now we're going to use it all for ourselves. Children that were corruptors. And then God moves in verse 4 also to a description of their actions. He's spoken about who they are, their identity, and now he goes to their actions. And he says they have forsaken the Lord. They have forsaken the Lord. Now there's few pains greater than a child running away from home. And maybe some of you here have experienced that, maybe not physically, but emotionally. And here Israel is, forsaking the most loving parent they could have asked for, running away from God. And then he says they have provoked the Holy One of Israel to anger. They've provoked him. The idea is, an, is, is of antagonizing God. Young people, you can think of the example of a fire. I don't know if you do this. I'm not recommending this, but when I was young, we would sometimes take gasoline and we would pour it on a fire to see what would happen. What happens? Well, the fire leaps towards you, doesn't it, if you're not careful? That's exactly what was happening with Israel and God's wrath. Israel was pouring gasoline upon the fire of God's wrath. And God is saying, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And then he finishes with this. They have gone away backward. The idea is they haven't just moved back, but they've turned around and they're gone. They're gone. Spurgeon says about this verse, he says, if God were a demon, if God were a demon, man could hardly be more cold towards him. So this is Israel. Not a pretty description. They're rebellious. They're covenant breakers. They're sinful. They're foolish. They're they're, they're bowed down, laden under with iniquity. And quite honestly, if we were in that position, if we were in God's position, looking at our children doing these things, we would probably just end things right there. And God would have been entirely just to just say, I'm finished. I'm finished with this people. So much sin. So much rebellion. And yet, and yet, what do we see? We see that God continues. He continues with a plea. A father's plea. He turns here away from the court, and he looks directly into Israel's eyes. And he says these words, Why, why should ye be stricken anymore? Why should ye be stricken anymore? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devour it in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Now, we can't go into all the details this evening for the sake of time, but Israel is in a terrible, terrible place. They're full of wounds, infected wounds, a gruesome sight. And those wounds aren't being taken care of. And instead of going to the one that could care for them, they're turning their back upon him. And God is saying, why? Why? Why would you be stricken? 
children, maybe you've experienced something like this in a small way. Maybe you've insisted on disobeying your parents and your parents have had to discipline you. And then they've had to discipline you again and then again and again and again. Maybe they finally say to you, son, daughter, why would you be disciplined again? It doesn't give joy to a parent's heart to inflict pain upon a child. Nor does it give joy to God's heart to discipline his children. And yet he does it. He does it to draw them away from evil. To take them away from destruction. To keep them from running headlong over the cliff that leads to hell. And as we look at our lives also as adults, we have to admit that God does this also in our lives, doesn't he? Sometimes he does bring painful circumstances into our lives. Sometimes we don't recognize it, but he does. And he afflicts us to teach us to come back to him, to come back to him. And maybe you are here this evening and you are in a place of discipline. Maybe nobody knows it but you. Maybe you don't even know it. But God is laying his disciplining hand upon you in various aspects of your life. And he's calling you not to despair, but to return. To return to the hand that bruises, but that also binds up. And the question we have to answer if we're in this place is are we returning? Are we returning? Maybe we feel the discipline of God in our hearts. Maybe we feel it spiritually. Maybe we feel distant from God. Maybe it's been many a Sunday since we've felt the warmth of God's love in our hearts. Maybe you experienced what the psalmist experienced in Psalm 38 when he says, there is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger. Neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. For mine iniquities are gone over mine head. As in heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. If we're in this place, the call is never to despair. The call is never to despair, but to return. To return to the Lord. To understand that his discipline is designated to draw you back to himself. That's the call. And that was also the call to Israel. And in fact, as we we hear all these things and we think about this wonderful character of God, who who uses discipline to keep us from destruction and who is so patient and so long-suffering and so kind, we might think, now Israel is going to return. They've got to. It's so obvious. But what do we read in our text? In verse 5, we have that question. Why should ye be stricken anymore? There's a deafening silence. There's no response. There's no, I am returning to you, my Father. There's only this conclusion. This conclusion from the Father. Ye will revolt more and more. You will revolt more and more. You see, God had looked down at Israel since their inception. And what he had seen was not that there were some people who were doing okay. That there were some people where there was just enough of an inclination that, well, maybe they would make it. He didn't see some people who, yes, they sinned, but they did okay in other areas of their life, and so, okay, we'll, we'll let them be. He didn't see that. He looked down upon Israel 
And he's looked down upon all of humanity and he looks down on us here tonight also. And he says, as we read in Psalm 14, that they are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Children. That means no one. That means no one. That means you here tonight. There's no one here. Me, nor you, nor anyone in this town, nor in this province, nor in this country, nor in this globe that does good. We've all gone astray, even from our birth. There is no righteousness in man. And as we look at this chapter, and we consider all that God has done for Israel and to Israel, we have to come to the conclusion that no matter how harsh the discipline, no matter how persuasive the rewards, man is just not going to turn to God. It's not going to happen. Man cannot be coerced. His dead heart cannot be forced to turn to God. There must be something else. And as we hear this, we should be asking the question, where's the hope? Is there any hope? Was there hope for Israel? Is there hope for us? Well, this is where we so desperately need the second part of God's conclusion. We need the second part of the Father's conclusion, and we find that in verse 9. Here in verse 9, we could say that we see something of the light at the end of the tunnel. We see something of a dawn after a dark and stormy night. We read these words, Except the Lord of hosts, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been a Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. You know, it's hard to find more wonderful words in all of Scripture than those three words, Accept the Lord. Accept the Lord. You see, sitting here tonight, not one of us should be looking at ourselves and saying, I have hope in myself. There is no hope in us. There is hope only in God. In fact, if you look all through the book of Isaiah, you find out that the whole book effectively eliminates, it blots out any of the righteousness of man. There is no righteousness in man. That is one of the loud cries of Scripture. But at the same time, the book of Isaiah is all about, it's all about the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. The accept the Lord. If you go all the way to the end of Isaiah, Isaiah 59, almost to the end, you read these words. And the Lord saw it. He saw there was a lack of justice. He saw there was no salvation for his people. And the Lord saw it. And it displeased him that there was no judgment. And he saw that there was no man. And wondered that there was no intercessor. He wondered that there was nobody who could do it. But what's his conclusion? Therefore, therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him. And his righteousness, his righteousness, it sustained him. That is where we must end, is in the righteousness of God. Hosea 13 verse 9 puts it so concisely. O Israel, O church family here in Monarch, thou hast destroyed thyself, but... In me is thy help. But in me, but in God is our help. And then you move to the New Testament and you come to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, one of the most wonderful passages in Scripture. We read these words. And you, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, 
in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, but God, who was rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. That's the gospel. By grace. By grace. The righteousness of God. You know, when I was younger and we had a Sunday school time after the morning service, I had an elder who would teach that Sunday school. And sometimes he would return to this text and he would read through it and then he would get to that but God. And his voice always started to tremble at that point because he was so blown away by the mercy of God. Are you blown away by the mercy of God in Christ Jesus? This is what we need, isn't it? And now, of course, I don't know you here today very well. I don't know very many of you, and I don't know your situations, but it may be that some of you here are in a situation like Israel was in. Maybe you're in a place of hopelessness. Maybe you're in a place of darkness, a place of discouragement. Maybe you're struggling with health problems. You have sickness that you're wrestling through. It's getting you down. Maybe you're having difficulty with your children. Maybe you have tension in your marriage. Maybe you have some financial problems. Maybe there's some thorn in your flesh that just won't leave you alone. Or there's a temptation that you're wrestling with. Or maybe like Israel, you see in yourself a heart of rebellion that just won't go away. You see, whenever we leave our eyes fixed upon ourselves and all our problems, it's like midnight. It's pitch black, if we're honest. But when we look to the Lord, when we look to the Lord, then we see light. Then we see hope. Then we see all that we need in our struggles. Then we see that if it were for ourselves, we would have failed. But the Lord, but the Lord is our help. The Lord is our salvation. And as I come to a conclusion of the sermon, I want to try to make this as practical as I can to us here this evening. I want to speak first of you, first to you who are Christians. Those of you who have placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I say to you first that isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful to know that your righteousness is in the Lord, not your own righteousness? Doesn't that bring you joy? What a wonderful thing to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But let me speak also to those of you who are Christians but who perhaps have backslidden in the last while. In fact, maybe... This evening, you've backslidden badly and you find yourself, as it were, back in this courtroom of God with the witnesses around you, your conscience screaming at you, the word of God witnessing against you. And you ask the question, is there hope for me? Will God be patient with me? But what a wonderful reality it is that when that judge of all the universe should look at us and slam that gavel down and say, the court case is closed. Guilty is charged. The witnesses are dismissed. He waits. He withholds. Why? Why does God wait? Why does God withhold his judgment? even for backslidden Christians. 
It's because in that courtroom, you are not alone. You are not alone. The Lord Jesus Christ stands there, doesn't he? With all Christians, he stands there. And he stands between you and the judge. And every time those accusations come against you from the law, from the devil, the Lord Jesus Christ stands there. And he says, it is finished. It is finished. The work was done. My righteousness is here. The sinner is now behind me. He is mine. And I am his. And that means, doesn't it, that when you are in a place of backsliding, when you are in a place of backsliding, the call is never to despair, but to return to the God who owns you. To return. The Lord Jesus Christ does not dismiss you with coldness. He says to you, peace be unto you. Peace be unto you, even in our backsliding, even in our backsliding. He calls out, he stretches out his hands, and he reminds us that he took, he took the punishment for us. Those, those holes in his hands don't disappear at different times in our lives. They're always there, always witnessing to the fact that the price has been paid for our sins and the call The call is to return to the Lord, to return to the Lord. In Isaiah 40, God says these words to Israel. He says, fear not, fear not, thou worm Jacob, and ye men of Israel, I will help thee, I will help thee, saith the Lord and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. This is grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sins. And so if we're in a place of backsliding, we're in a place of deadness, don't despair. Go back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Say, Lord, I have fallen. Lord, I've fallen again. And we all do. Lord, my heart is cold again. Lord, warm up my heart. Lord, bring me back to thy side. Teach me, Lord, again what it is to rest and to trust and to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. But even as I give that application, I want to also speak to those of you who are unbelievers. Maybe you also find yourself here in this courtroom of God, and the evidence truly is piling up. It's getting heavier and heavier, and you know it. You know it. And you ask the question, well, I'm not saved. What do I do? What do I do? Well, the advice is very simple. The advice is so simple. The advice is to take your eyes away from yourself, to turn and look full in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to take all of your fears, all of your sins, all of your doubts, all your lack of faith, Lay them at the Lord Jesus Christ's feet and say, Lord, I cannot do it. It is thy righteousness and thy righteousness only. And trust, and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. Isn't that the cry of Scripture? Isn't that the gospel? Isn't that why we're here today? Because if we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. If it wasn't that way, we would not be here today. In fact, the world would not exist. There would be no purpose. But the gospel stands sure. The gospel stands sure. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Cry out with Peter. Children, you remember that scene where Peter walks out onto the water at the command of the Lord? And he begins to sink as he looks at all of the waves around him. What does Peter say? Does he say, oh no, I'm finished? That's not what he says. He says, Lord, save me. And what did Jesus do? Did he say, no, Peter, you should have stepped three steps farther and then I would have saved you. He doesn't say that. Whenever we reach out our hand to the Lord, the Lord always takes our hand in his 
and draws us to himself. All who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. That's the promise of the gospel. Come to him. He will not turn you out. Amen. Let's close in prayer.